You're listening to Managing Leadership Anxiety, Yours and Theirs, a podcast offered in partnership with Missio Alliance. Each episode, we discuss internal and relational pressures, how they block effective leadership, and how we can move through them to a greater health. And now your host, Steve Cuss. All right, friends, as you know, on this season of the show, I've been really fascinated by the nature of power, how power relates to anxiety, and uh, not just personally in our life, but also in our systems and structures. And so some of my guests I've asked to either come on the show or, or like my guest today, come back on the show, because I think they have something to teach us all. And uh, my guest, I don't remember DJ, it, it had to be one of my earlier seasons, you were kind enough to come on, but DJ Chuang is our guest today. And many of you know who he is. And if you don't, uh, he just has an incredible voice in in two essential areas today. The first is, well, really his book, The Multi-Asian Church. DJ's a, uh, an Asian-American pastor, consultant, and leader. Uh, but also, DJ speaks very openly and candidly and, and so helpfully about the, the challenge of mental illness. And what I find fascinating, particularly in Asian culture, uh, where honor, shame is such a big piece of that. So, uh, DJ has an incredible podcast called Erasing Shame. Uh, you might actually pronounce it Erasing Shame. DJ, how would you say that? <laughs> That's right. Erasing Shame is how we pronounce it as Americans. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, and now that I am an American, uh, I, I got to stick with the Aussie way, Erasing Shame. But hey, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for coming on Managing Leadership Anxiety. Well, thank you for inviting me back. I'm still perplexed that you would have me on because I'm not the typical guest on your podcast or most other podcasts, but thank you for giving space and uh, disrupting the power dynamic. So you're demonstrating the power issue that is at play with many of these platforms that often people that have the quote unquote influence and platform have power. Yeah. Yeah. It, it, it's, uh, I love that you bring it up. It's been a fascinating journey for me to go from as it relates to platform from absolute obscurity to now actually um, having a, a, a platform. It is an interesting dynamic and you, you touch on the power nature of it. The temptation I have faced to try to get people on my show who might spread my platform, for example, and then the tension between that and um, finding people that I just want to learn from, which is what got me started on this mm. podcast, you know, and, and mm. yeah, you're one of those people. Um, so yeah, tell us, tell us what you're thinking there. What made you say that? What's going on in you? And what are you seeing in the way platform is used or misused in the kingdom? Well, when you first prompted me about this new season you're doing about power, it's been a seed that's been germinating on the back burner of my brain, plus seeing all the scandals and power dynamics at play in the race, racial tensions that go all the way back to 2016 at the very least, particularly with uh, President Trump's really stirring that up and uh, facilitating a very polarized nation, which I think racism has always been under the surface, but it really yeah. came to the surface with his vocalization of it. And then during the pandemic, as an Asian American, we've, uh, as Asians, have experienced so much anti-Asian hate crime, well over 10,000 reported, which 
uh, it's probably just indicators more than 20,000 that are uh, not nice. reported. And so people um, who look like me, I'm Chinese American, um, are more often than we would like uh, looked on with suspicion or discomfort. And the rhetoric in the whole racial dynamic of America has just been so aggravated during and post um, COVID. And so that that's just one layer of the power dynamic. And then the other one, I think, is the democratization of our voices and platforms uh, through social media. And so the anti-institutional, if I could put it that way, anti-institutional, anti-organizational voice, uh, particularly manifested, and I think you have some um, experiences in the megachurch world, there's a lot mm -hmm. of pushback yeah. and scrutiny against megachurches um, um, in particular. And then in the culture milieu, there's just a lot of anti-Christian and anti-church rhetoric on top of that. And so those are just two of the major dynamics that I'm attuned to because of who I am. And then I'm sure for class distinctions, for um, other minorities, immigrants, um, trauma-impacted um, people, mental illness people, uh, marginalized this or that. There's so many dimensions to the power dynamics. And in my first introduction to you, just to uh, give context to people and reorient myself, when you wrote the book, Managing Leadership Anxiety, so much of it resonated for me because I don't see myself as the uh, typical leader in terms of an organization. So I'm very much more of an organic leader and I, I'm not hierarchical or structural, but I, I happen to have spent a lot of my adult life working in nonprofits and organizations. So I know enough to be dangerous, but I don't wield the power in that sense of the uh, dynamic. And then the other thing that just came to mind was reading a book by Deb Liu, who is now the CEO of Ancestry.com. And she used to be a oh, VP wow. at Facebook. And her book was Take Back Your Power. And it just came out about a month ago. And I knew her from 25 years ago when she was in college at Duke University. And it's amazing to see how her career has flourished. And yet she's also a person of faith and lives, lives out her Christian faith well. And I learned a lot from that book. She's writing from the perspective of being a, a woman in the marketplace and dealing with corporate dynamics. But I learned a lot about the power that I have, even though it's not the conventional organizational power. So it's been empowering to me to learn um, how to begin to learn to change my mindset, which is my mindset because of culture and personality is defaulting to being deferential. Right. So my, my habit from years of practice is defaulting to deferential when in the real world, we have more power than we realize. And as we become more adept at using it in a non-anxious way, it can be very influential. And I think that's how I integrate all of those things I've long learned along the way. And I thank you for helping me with that. Oh man. Yeah. What a great way to, to start DJ. I, I, I think the, 
what I've enjoyed doing is is exploring the implication of power and anxiety. It obviously has a direct relationship. Mm. And what we'll do on on our time together is we, we will look at it both ways, the the systems and structures, the community aspect of it, but also then the individual, your inner critic, the story you tell yourself, you know, it's, it's both related. For me, the journey, I, I think it started when I, I compared and contrasted Jesus' triumphal procession on Palm Sunday with Pontius Pilate's triumphal procession. Some scholars say the same day. Uh, you know, Pontius Pilate is processing from Caesarea Philippi mm-hmm. into Jerusalem. Jesus is coming from the other side. Pontius has this big horse, hundreds of soldiers, slaves dragged behind him, a, a classic Roman triumph. Jesus has a foal of a donkey, like it's almost funny. Um, and just the simple idea, DJ, that that gospel, true gospel power liberates, sets free. Uh, the way I picture it is it comes from underneath us and, and makes us more human. Mm-hmm. But every other form of power comes on top and oppresses and pushes us down. And uh, that really lit me up about, about that's how chronic anxiety works, is it's an oppressor. Um, but also part of why I'm interested in chatting with you is the more I'm in minority space as a majority culture person myself, the more I'm listening, the more I'm learning. And um, one of the things that I'm learning is when anybody from minority culture is the only person of your kind in a room, like maybe we're having a mm-hmm. meeting mm-hmm. and there's six white people and one Asian American, uh, you are hyper aware that you're the only one in the room and I may not be hyper. For me, you're just another dude, you mm-hmm. know? Tell us about what that's like for you when you walk into a room and you scan it. What kind of work is going on in you to figure out how much of myself am I bringing and what's safe and what's not safe? What's that like for you? Mm, That's a great question and that's a very common experience. And to be fair, I mean, the demographics are still um, right around 50% white, 50% non-white. So it's, it's a normal setting to uh, have a white majority, and then you might have um, 15% black, 15% Latino, and then, what's that, 20% others <laughs> to be a uh, fully diverse demographic. But that only happens in New York City and L.A. and certain other events. So there's a lot of local variation. Um I think for me, uh, well, I grew up in a small town of 20,000 where it was uh, 99% white. And because of culture and personality, I've, uh, as I mentioned earlier, I defer. And so I, I'm de- yeah. deferential. And I did not and still do not know how to use my power to show up in that kind of room. So there's, um, I think, was it Brene Brown or some of the other authors that have noticed the um, tendency or the behavior that people have when there's tension in the room. Some people will power up and some people are powered down. And for me, my, my habit is to be the observer or the wallpaper and, and, just happy to be in the room because um, we're often not in the room. And so for me to just be in the room is I count it an honor and privilege. 
and then uh, the other default would be how that shows up would be I'm happy to be in the room and just listening and I've noticed that with my peers uh, other Asian Americans even those who are in positions of leadership oh they're just happy to be in the room and take a learning posture and the tendency is we we won't speak until we're spoken to or asked to speak up and that's a general tendency there's a few exceptions uh, people who may be louder but i think in terms of the cultural dynamic there the power dynamic there um we we take a learning posture because we i think from our cultural background we want to read the room first to see what is the normative behavior there and then uh, interject or participate in an appropriate way and so um I've noticed, another thing I'll mention is, I've noticed with some of my peers when they are in those rooms as the only Asian and everybody else is white. And that happens in the boardroom, that happens in cohorts. And I'll debrief, I'll have side conversation with my Asian friends and they say, yep, it was white. And they were insensitive or just not aware of the issues of diversity. Um, the, um, They've only known whiteness, so that's normal for them. And that's quote unquote normal for us. And so for Asians to actually participate would be disruptive and derailing. And so it's just um, difficult to engage. Uh, I'll put it that way. And so unless room is intentionally made for it, it's just going to be awkward on both sides. And what's frustrating for the majority then is uh, we're moving too slow. We're getting distracted from the focus because the tendency in white culture is to push ahead, look for the future, and get to the answers rather than taking the time to listen and build that solidarity. I would make that as one of the primary contrasts in a diverse environment versus a majority environment. It's really helpful. I, uh, some of the work I'm doing lately with organizations is is helping them in their staff meetings mm. make sure that everyone can bring their full self. Mm. You know, some of us are very talkative and some are more quiet. That's all fine. But what happens is, it, I'll just rephrase what you're mm -hmm. saying, Brene Brown saying, the way I teach it is we get bigger or we get smaller mm -hmm. when we're anxious. And what I've learned from minority culture, people of color particularly, and particularly DJ like uh, black women have helped me with this is how much they shape shift. And, and that's what I heard from you when you said, I read the room, I'm checking. And what it's so sad to hear that it's not safe for you just to bring who you are, but instead you have to filter check. That's exhausting. That's not something typically that I as a white man have to do. Uh, I, I've been very rarely am I the minority in any room. I, I did some wonderful consulting work for an organization that is predominantly led by young women. Mm. And it was incredible. And I spent four days where I was the only man in the room. Mm. And even though I'm majority culture, it was, it was a good experience for me to notice how much harder I was working mm -hmm. because I was the only one of my kind. Um, the other thing I've noticed, I'm going to share it, and then I'd just like to get your reaction to it. Mm -hmm. In our church, we happen to have women elders, uh, women pastors, women elders, 
but for years, I, it took me, I'm embarrassed to say, it took me too long to realize we had one woman elder. Hmm. And so we had maybe six or seven elders. One was a woman, the rest were dudes. And then, uh, I don't know, five or six years ago, we made the intentional move to go 50-50. We are actually going to hmm. intentionally populate our board with equal men and women. And then we moved intentionally to women being our chair and vice chair. Hmm intentionally swinging the pendulum and dj it was phenomenal how it changed our dynamic mm -hmm. how much better it made our dynamic what's your reaction to that that's a bold move so commend you you and your leadership for doing that just changing the composition um changes everything and um it's the, the image that came to mind is learning to, if you're right-handed, learning to write left-handed. Mm. And so that's how uncomfortable it is to bring diversity in on the gender level, on the racial level, on the age level. So those, those are all the things that churches are wrestling with. I'm assuming you have a predominantly church audience, but also just people of faith yep. in the workplace. And so uh, the easier route for many of those in power is to go with the way they're comfortable with because that's how they got to where they are, being proficient at doing things the way they've been done. And there's a pressure to perform and get results and get numbers. And then to do this diversity at the gender and racial and age level it's gonna take a hit on the numbers in the short term. And that's very uncomfortable, that's very scary, that's very anxious, provoking. And so that's a big reason why people don't do it. But I think for the future of the church, if we're honest, we, we have to do it. Mm. And I suppose if we do it sooner, we'll get proficient at it sooner. And so that, that would be the pivot I think we have the opportunity to, and I think um, perhaps from the pandemic, we realized, okay, the pivot from in-person to digital was a necessity, but we can really parlay that and leverage that. Well, the world is diversifying very rapidly. The church is declining. If we only do it the way it was, then, hey, let's, um, let's quote unquote, bite the bullet, invite some good friends or make some new friends who, who are diverse and give us that new perspective and let's learn together faster rather than slower. And it's sad to me that, um, well, it's, it's challenging, but it's sad to me that uh, the door hasn't been open to invite new voices to the table because it's, so, it's such an urgent issue um, from my vantage point, but I can't invite myself to the table, um, though I, you know, I reach out to people and build relationships across the board where I can. So again, I'm grateful to be here to talk with you about it because um, it needs to be talked about, not in the angry way, because that's what happens. The ones who are angry and loud and quote unquote social justice talk about it, but that's not very inviting. So I've been on the board of a, a small nonprofit and we've had some people file grievances because they have new perspectives that could be helpful to the organization. But that 
wasn't the way to get invited to the table, and so they're not being invited to the table, even though they had valuable perspectives to share. And so um, if we can start with building healthy, meaningful relationships and accelerate diversifying, um, I think we'll all win in the long run. It's a really interesting word you're giving us because I, I've also had to learn as a majority culture person, um, my tendency to want everyone to be calm. In fact, mm. I've very recently shifted off calm language and now I use more connected language. Mm -hmm. My wife helped me with it. My wife's a trauma therapist. Mm. And she was saying, sometimes calm is not the goal. Calm is one of the tools, but the goal is connection. And mm. the reason I bring that up, DJ, is, is sometimes outrage and anger is a gift to majority culture because we don't feel it much. Mm. We, you know, not only, um, not only is this issue, like the gospel compels us to care about something that doesn't affect us as white people, but if you really want to get down to it, we are to care about something that actually benefits us. That, mm. That's the problem. The, the culture is tilted toward me. Um, and so therefore, I believe as a majority culture person, one of the gifts you can give me as a minority culture is your outrage and your anger. Because if we're just calm together, I'm probably not going to catch up fast enough. That's my... Mm. current working theory mm -hmm. uh, and so when I'm in organizations mm -hmm. I'm often encouraging a little more outrage uh, and then I'm trying to help majority culture realize okay just let that happen and then what happens after that is where the really good stuff is mm. um, that's a good because word. it seems yeah it seems unfair to me that you'd have to manage how I experience you in order to stay at the table mm. Yeah, maybe another way to frame that is uh, the pain and the hurt. Uh -huh. uh, outrage is uh, not a comfortable place for Asians to go either. So. <laughs> oh, there you go. Okay, yeah. Say, say more about that. Um, well, as I've become more active in my own mental health advocacy and self-care, it's um, the language and the um, thing that I try to do is to facilitate a safe place for people to share vulnerably, honestly, and freely. And that's all the spectrum of emotions and feelings. So that could be outrage, that could be anger, that could be hurt, pain, trauma, struggles, um, confusion, whatever. And so to create that safe place, um, you, the vulnerability begets vulnerability. Um, sharing my own pain and story helps other invites others to share um, their pains and confusion. Um, perhaps for majority cultures, I, I don't know what I don't know. And so really leaning into that uncomfortable place, not in an anxious way, but in a open-handed way with a learning posture would be go a long way. Uh, another thought just came to mind is that there's a book, a yellow book, Culture Map, and they were describing how different cultures communicate. So mm -hmm. in white culture, if there's two seconds of silence, people start feeling anxious and they want to fill that yes. in with words. In yeah. Chinese culture, people can wait eight seconds before someone feels the itch to have to talk. And then in Latino culture, um, People just talk over each other. <laughs> so there, there's a 
cross-cultural dynamic that we wouldn't be aware of until we've heard of that dynamic. And so that may be just a helpful tool to realize silence isn't mm. always a bad thing. Some people need to get that time to gather their thought, and they just have a different pace of sharing. But creating that kind of empathetic environment facilitates that kind of connection and safety of sharing. And so much of this is more emotional than cognitive, and we mm. have to work both sides of the brain. And I think mm. what you've put together in terms of leadership anxiety works both sides of the brain. And we're oh, just beginning so that DJ. journey as a people. Yeah in terms of emotional intelligence and emo emotionally healthy spirituality, emotionally healthy leadership, emotionally healthy discipleship. Um, it's, it's very much where we have developed as human and so essential for the future of the church. That's, so, that's such a great, I'm so glad you said that because um, it, as I'm listening to you, I'm thinking, man, this is why we all need a nap after a staff meeting. If you really mm. meet well, it, it involves all of you. Mm -hmm. Uh, I, I've been doing some work um, with teams where for some people on the team, uh, English is their second language. Mm. If I'm, in fact, tonight, I'll be Zooming a group of uh, pastors from all over Southeast Asia. There'll be 40 or so pastors, and for about half of them or more, they're translating as I teach. Mm. And um, I've had to get used to silence. I'll teach and then ask a question. And of course, for several of them, they're still translating. They're still getting mm -hmm. into their heart language. They're they're, they're culturally figuring out my Western approach and their mm -hmm. approach. And, um, and then there's others who, like I am a rapid processor, my brain moves mm -hmm. fast, which does not mean I'm smarter than someone. Uh, what I tell people now just means I get us into trouble faster than someone else does. <laughs> but other people are deliberators, whether, whatever, whatever culture they are. Mm -hmm. And a good leader, I do think, I love the way you just said they create a, a place of empathy where everyone can participate at the pace at which they think or process. It's a beautiful vision. It, it mm -hmm. sounds a lot to me like the body of Christ. Mm -hmm. Amen. Well, DJ, we, we wanted to talk about two things that obviously we both knew in the limit of, of this time frame we'd be touching the surface. But let's get inside our heads. That's the other place where power really wreaks havoc. I've come to the conclusion that, that chronic anxiety is a oppressive power structure and that the gospel can liberate us from it. You've been very open about mental health and the importance of mental health. Just give us a taste of your journey with that. Yeah, the quick version is that I was diagnosed with bipolar disorder 22 years ago uh, after spending 10 years of my life trying to be a pastor five years in seminary, five years pastoring at two different churches, and realizing I could be an okay pastor, but who needs an okay pastor? <laughs> uh, no, the, the need for pastors is even greater uh, post-pandemic. But um, my personal growth is bringing together my left brain and right brain and integrating my uh, desires and passions along with my skills. Growing, growing up in a Chinese family and being the oldest son, my default was to be duty, dutiful and responsible and essentially suppress and cut off my emotions and desires. But it came to a point where 
that no longer worked for me and my body and my emotions gave out and it wanted a place to breathe and come alive and so for the past 20 years learning to uh, get healthy emotionally physically and mentally and spiritually was pulling all of that together allowing the whole self you mentioned before the whole self to come alive in a healthy way to experience the abundant life that Jesus has promised and I'm still on medication I, I'm gonna see my therapist later today and um, I can use all the help I can get to uh, stay healthy uh, five years ago I had a personal crisis where I uh, wound up in the psych ward for three days because I was misbehaving during one of my hypomanic episodes so bipolar 2 is my diagnosis which means I have mood swings where I'm I've elevated highs and dramatic lows so the dramatic lows look like depression the highs look like super creativity I could write three books in a week I could sleep on four hours and my brain would be rapidly firing well, during one of those elevated moves, I, I was uh, misbehaving, went on a shopping spree of $1,500, um, did some other strange things, apparently, I'm not sure what, but then I was detained, handcuffed, wound up in the psych ward, and it was very sobering, very humbling, never thought I would wind up there. Um, and then since that time, I've realized, okay, I, I will stay on the path of health and wellness, that's the mantra I tell myself to um, use the best of my facilities to stay healthy. I've given permission to my wife and son to call me on things if they notice anything um, that is peculiar. So I'm open to feedback. And then um, I get nine hours of sleep a night. I take a Nap, nap in the afternoon and I'm grateful as a freelance consultant now that I'm able to work less than full time so um, that's how I'm able to manage my time and energy and then in 2018 I started the podcast Erasing Shame where we have honest talk for healthy living so Asian Americans just talking about every aspect of shame including mental health but relationships work anything else that causes us shame or triggers shame and then this summer I got into a conversation with a friend and initially as a freelance consultant I was just gonna help my friend write some grants because he does some consulting with nonprofits in their capacity building and strategic planning and he said we could be dreaming bigger I just turned 56 he's 60 and that conversation went very rapidly and now we are uh, pivoting and launching a new initiative called Christian Asian Mental Health. Mm. And we're collaborating with an existing organization that's just a year old, Asian American Christian Collaborative. And so we're dreaming big and we're wanting to facilitate a national conversation and collaboration that will erase shame and stop stigma about mental health, especially among Asian American Christians. So my podcast now has a tighter focus speaking about church and mental health uh, with Christians. And we want to advance compassion and care so that Asian churches in particular will be known 
for being a safe place for people who struggle. Mm. Right now, mm. the 9,000 churches or so that are Asian or Asian Americans don't have that reputation. Right. And so I, uh, I hope to be a part of uh, facilitating that in collaboration with some smaller efforts. I've found a dozen or so smaller efforts that are local and regional. I want to shine a spotlight on those and um, accelerate that the local church can do a lot to help mm. with this mental health crisis uh, by providing a safe place in terms of talking about these issues, because we as Asians don't ever talk about these issues. We don't even know how to talk about it. We have intergenerational trauma, which I think might be the way in because uh, Asian cultures do value family more than individual struggles even. And then um, the other thing that church can do is provide support groups and community, which medicine and therapy cannot. Medicine and therapy are just too expensive and not accessible to the masses. And my hope is, and I've been part, a part of a um, sm small group, support group, uh, using the Living Grace curriculum at Saddleback Church, which is my home church. And so I've had some personal practice with that curriculum. I'm also at a part, part of a church with Celebrate Recovery, and there's also something called Trauma Healing. So there's a handful of readily available, affordable curriculums that local churches, whether they're Asian or not Asian, can begin to really address the mental health crisis not just from an educational perspective, though that's the entry point, but also from the community support perspective, which is exactly what churches can provide that nothing else can. And the last thing I mentioned in this strategy is that the church is the only place that gathers Asian Americans every week. And that forms people, that shapes people, that can really help people, unlike other good uh, Asian American efforts that are out there in mental health. So that's the oh, latest with me and kind of a convergence of all my life experiences, having spent those years in seminary and uh, pastoring and coming alongside churches and my own lived experience. And I jokingly say this is my final chapter because it's more than a lifetime's of work. And so my learning curve is learning how to do this beyond myself and looking for people that can come alongside and build, build something that can be sustainable. Mm. You you just said so much mm. in what you just laid out for us, and and I think the overwhelming feeling I have listening to you is, is profound hope. It's it's incredibly hopeful mm -hmm. what you're now moving into, mm -hmm. um, and I, I just think DJ, it's such a gift for somebody who is tackling a mental illness to be on the front lines of providing resources. Um. And, and so much of what happens in Asian culture or Asian American culture um, is this, this stuck place or, or this challenge of the family reputation. Mm -hmm. um, I'm doing right now some genogram work with mm -hmm. some Asian pastors and they're trying to figure out, yeah, but what do I do with it? Like mm -hmm. I, behind closed doors in a locked room, no problem. Yes. But when I go back into my family, and I'm just I'm thinking back to when I lived in Japan in, in high school, I'd studied Japanese language and we mm. did exchange. We'd live in Japan and then Japanese kids would come live with us and it's fantastic. But it was a multi-generational experience. It was my peers, the parents, the grandparents, and even great-grandparents sometimes in one home. It was very beautiful. Um, but, but keeping 
the family reputation intact mm-hmm. at times can feel in direct opposition to what you're sharing, which is vulnerability and openness about a struggle, even though many of your own family members would get profound relief. How, how do you help people with that, um, that dilemma? It's uh, one at a time. And so um, I've gotten to a place where I've been decently healthy with my self-care. I, I was surprised that I made it through the pandemic without being derailed. And so that, that was a strong indicator that uh, my self-care is uh, pretty good, although I'm still vulnerable and susceptible. Uh, something could trigger me and blindside me at any time. So I'm, I'm very careful with my self-care and, and support structure. I'm, I'm well-supported. And then as I've gotten to share my story, I recognize it's an open door for, for ministry. So one of my biggest surprises, I was invited to speak at a Chinese church. So I was speaking English with translation, thought by thought, during the whole message. And in a Chinese church, I, I was really surprised that the, my message was well received. And I just talked from Second Corinthians 1 and weaved in my testimony, just like I shared briefly here. And I was counseling people one-on-one or two-on-one for two hours after the sermon. And so the need is obviously there. It's just below the surface, behind the closed doors. But that's okay. We can start there. And I think the opportunity for churches, it these kinds of care and support does happen in the pastor's office, regardless of your theological perspective and regardless of your uh, cultural background. It's already happening in the pastor's office. But the pastor cannot carry all that weight by by him or herself and the i think the next opportunity is for community care congregational care through the examples in the curriculums of support groups to create a bigger room where people can support each other and i found that very helpful to me i i not only need the support of experts like therapists and psychiatrists and pastors I also need the support of peers. And so it could be framed as just a prayer group. Uh, it could be framed as just uh, anybody that needs extra prayer. So one of the things I'm expanding the conversation on mental health is we all need to care for our mental health. And that can look like not just the DSM-5 diagnosis. Yeah. So I want to yeah. really stretch that into a continuum mm. of care to say it can look like anxiety, Depression, stress, burnout, grief, divorce, other losses, um, uh, trauma, uh, mistreatment at work, all of those things that are part of our human experience. And they don't seem as quote-unquote spiritual, but I think the church can really minister to all of that by reframing what church is about. Not just the Bible and prayer, but prayer for everyday life oh, and it's a, it's a, so that that's what i'm stepping into looking for a dozen churches that'll kind of pilot that with mm. me and develop you know a couple different frameworks of what that could look like in different asian churches and so those are my current conversations that are happening as we speak and it is very hopeful um god's given me that hope and that hope has 
pushed out the anxiety because personally I have you know, quite a bit of, I default to performance anxiety. <laughs> mm-hmm. yeah. so, uh, so that's very much still a memory that leaves a long shadow. But when I have opportunities to talk with you and then talk with others about what the, what's happening here, it's very energizing, very free. It's a it's such a beautiful vision because it it's discipling the whole self. It's mm. it's inviting people to bring exactly their humanity into mm-hmm. the church. I also love as the husband of a therapist who so often encourages people to get therapy. I love that you're not dismissing therapy, but mm-hmm. you're expanding the vision. I love how you're also capturing the idea that affordability is a genuine issue for a lot of people that proper therapy can be very expensive over over a number of sessions and so the idea that the church can become the first place that you can reach and and you're exactly right dj like as a pastor i i think of um how many times i i get up to preach Mm. and the way i describe it is it feels like i'm looking out over 200 secrets that i know Mm. you know as i see the people 200 in any given room that mm-hmm. have come into my office and vulnerably shared something. Oh, yes. It is holy, holy work. So I, I, I love what you're sharing there. I've, I've run us up against time. So rather than the gauntlet, let's just ask you for our sisters and brothers who are listening, who maybe their battle is a more DSM type clinical mental illness. Maybe you would just be willing to give us one or two of your of of your favorite tools you've already given us a lot actually but just maybe one or two that we could hang our hat on that you'd recommend that people uh encounter to help manage bipolar or anxiety depression two one or two of my best tools for someone who may be diagnosed or has recently been diagnosed with a DSM-5 disorder. One is finding a good friend who can journey with you day in and day out. Because the struggle is not just once a week when you can go see the doctor or talk to the therapist. It's every day. And so if that can be a family member or that can be a friend that you can call or text, that's going to be a lifeline that really helps you through the daily struggle and is very much a daily struggle. And so I'm grateful that I have a wife and a son who's supportive, but they're not exactly people I can talk with. So I have a therapist for that. And I was grateful um, to have a friend who I've known for 30 years, way back in seminary days. And he was one of my groomsmen. He lives about five minutes away. And so during my darkest season five years ago, we met up every Friday just to do lunch at Chick-fil-A. And he would tell me about his day, and I didn't have much to say, but just having a friend present with me was very grounding and helped me to see that I could make it through the struggle because he was there for me. And the second thing was I needed to renew my mind. So I memorized Psalm 23 and the Lord's Prayer. And I would just recite that 
over and over and over and over, back to back for sometimes hours at a time. And eventually that renewed my mind. I really give credit to the Word of God, really changing me. Because I couldn't pray really coherently. I couldn't read. But just having the, those words saturate my mind, I believe, helped to reset my mind. So those two things were the most powerful for me during my darkest struggle. And I did many other mm. things too, but those two, I believe, were the most powerful. Yeah, I definitely want to capture that you have laid out for us um, a plethora. Like you, what, you, what you have actually done is create a number of external and internal resources to, to stay well. But, but yeah, just to capture a couple, and I'm going to put in the show notes... Um, Listeners, I'm going to put in a show notes of DJ's website where he has a number of resources on both topics we've talked about. Um, also, a resource right here in Colorado called My Quiet Cave. It's the only group I'm aware of that does a theological treatment of bipolar disorder. Mm -hmm. It's absolutely a great, and, and it also hits the vision of what DJ's saying about finding a, a good friend, even if it's just to chat about life. Mm -hmm. um, I'll just wrap up the show with a, a reminder from Philip Yancey. I was at a conference years ago. Philip was one of the keynote speakers, and he was saying that, you know, because his life work is grappling with God in the midst of pain, mm. he has become the guy that is called in the worst moments in the world. So he was invited after the tsunami to speak. He goes mm. after school shootings to speak, and he talked about how the, the negative impact on him, where he's now outbalanced in these national and international tragedies. And the number one question Yancey gets is, um, what do I have to do to make sure I'll be okay if tragedy strikes? And I, I'll never forget Yancey's answer, DJ. He said, well, just find a local church and join it. Doesn't matter much what you think of the preaching. I mean, it helps if you like the preaching, but it doesn't matter much. And doesn't matter too much what you think of the music. It certainly helps if you enjoy mm -hmm. the music, but just find a local church and form good friendships and meet with them often. And Yancey said, if you do that for 25 years, when trouble strikes, you'll get through it. Mm -hmm. And obviously he's being provocative with a 25-year comment, but I just thought that was mm -hmm. a wonderful reminder of the power mm -hmm. of the body of Christ. And yes. DJ, you've given us that reminder today. Thank you yes. so much for coming on again and sharing your heart and your expertise and your brain. We'll have links to your resources. Uh, folks, DJ is available to help you to mm -hmm. consult uh, with these resources, both mental health resources and also diversity resources. As you can hear, he knows what he's talking about. He's not just trained, but he has lived it and he practices it. So I just commend him to you. And DJ, thanks for joining us today. It's a joy to be with you again, Steve. Thank you. <laughs>